I'm trying to, to keep several balls in the air here to, to make a point, but if you had to brought to from a scriptural context, think of 1 Corinthians 1.18, where Paul is talking about the foolishness of the cross. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so the idea here is that throughout this section of scripture, Paul is describing human wisdom. And of course, what he's actually saying about human wisdom is that it is undone by what it would imagine is foolishness. That is, it rejects as foolish. It, it rejects, you know, Paul himself will be called mad. Um, that there is a rejection of this madness. Uh, and it's on this basis that human wisdom is established. But what Paul is saying about this sort of wisdom is that it's integrally related to death, that those who do this, who reject the foolishness of the cross, are themselves caught up in an orientation to death. They are perishing. And what he's saying the cross does for us, what it enables us to do, is to penetrate this foolishness that is human wisdom and displace it with the true wisdom of God and so that we're saved. And I assume that this salvation, certainly it's above and beyond our capacity to apprehend it, but it's also involved in the transformation of the mind that Paul will describe in Romans that we're all going through. That is, that we should be able to deconstruct human wisdom. We should be able to understand how it is that its very foundation is dependent upon a kind of rejection of the gospel. I'm not taking this metaphorically, I'm just taking it quite literally. Uh, that these two wisdoms, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man, are, cannot be correlated. They're not on a parallel course, but one stands over and against another. Um, a way of illustrating this, you know, is that I'm taking my experience in Japan, and uh, especially in, in a psychoanalytic understanding, that the very construct, of this as pitted against a Western construct, same science, same, you know, science there in quotes, but the, the same uh, studies then are set up as a kind of dialectic that is always then this dialectic of one that would, you know, uh, it's depended upon a, a rejection of one sort of thought and but this rejection, like, you know, the knowledge of good and evil, this is Hegel, of course, the good is dependent upon the evil, the evil is dependent upon the good, that the very foundation of human wisdom is dependent upon what it rejects. That is, that it's a, uh, it's a getting rid of something uh, that enables it. And so what we're saying about... Uh, the human world, and here by world we don't mean God's good creation, but we mean uh, that uh, construct that we have, you know, when John uses the term world or cosmos, he means it in a twofold sense, that there is the human world, 
that is made up of the prince of the power of the air, that is made up of the principalities and powers, that is uh, in some way a false world constituted in darkness, uh, that this world by its very existence is a, a parasite on God's good creation, but the way that it is a parasite, it is in and through rejecting it. That's what Paul's describing here. So, do we ever really get rid of God? Do we really ever get rid of, you know, even the the cross? Well, there is the sense that the, the rejection of these things is still the enabling factor uh, in these things, that you could do an entire... You know, understanding of human argumentation, human apologetics. Uh, you know that that the the whole function of human rationality, even in its negation of God, is still in some way dependent upon God. And so this is you know the idea, literally taking up the notion of a privation theory. And absorbing it then, actually describing how privation can function as a mode of thought or a mode of uh, even of scholarship. Uh, in some ways, I think that this is the grand mistake of uh, Christian apologetics, is that there is a presumed you know, common sense uh, or a presumed uh, wisdom or common understanding. And I think what it fails to see is that that uh, human wisdom uh, only contains in a negative form uh, the wisdom of God It's in, in its rejection. And so, you know, the illustration of this would be idolatry. Is there an element of of the good of God and idolatry only in as much as it's absent which may you know that it is dependent upon what's not there what's rejected um, this this would uh, take some working out but if you think of Paul in his circumstance uh, in Corinthians when he's coming uh, to Corinth of course he's come from Athens and the way that he had used the same sort of argument in Athens, and the question is, you know, um, he had just preached on the Areopagus, he had referenced the God that, you know, the idol, that, that the, the unknown God, that there is a God that's in some way acknowledged in his absence, the unknown God, the God that's not there. There is this power that's recognized, this absent power, that plays its role then, I think, not just religiously, that idolatry is not simply a positing of a positive force, but actually idolatry is by its very nature a picture of that which cannot be reached. It's a it's not so much taking the transcendent and making it imminent as we often picture idolatry, but in fact it's just the opposite. It's the positing of a transcendent that is inaccessible, and in its very inaccessibility, or it's it, that the whole point of idolatry is to in some way gain an ecstatic experience or gain a place, you know, that if you think here of Buddhism, that there it involves a dissolution of the self. It involves an undoing of one world. 
in Hinduism, this world is referred to as Maya. It's in some way unreal. And so this unknown God, Paul is going to uh, do something that's quite strange. Now, whether this was an effective philosophical move, you know, his con- number of converts were not very many in Athens. Uh, but he, he says, well, I'm taking what you imagine is by definition unknown and perhaps unknowable, and I'm proclaiming it to you. I'm making it known to you. So that, in a sense, this is the undoing of human wisdom, because human wisdom is posited on this sort of negation, an absolute negation, that, you know, this is... Uh, this is there in many forms. It's there in the ontological argument that the nothing is always played over and against the something, something then which nothing greater can be thought. And that dialectic itself between something and nothing is the foundation then of a form of thought that in and of itself is emptied by the gospel because Paul is saying what is proclaimed, you know, what you say is nothing, I'm going to tell you what that is. And that, uh, I think, is highly offensive, especially in its details, because what Paul will describe then as the positive, you know, revelation is in and through Christ, who in the resurrection, of course, at the Areopagus, uh, the resurrection is the point when they think he's crazy, when they say this man is mad. Because what he's doing is, is saying that death itself is undone in Christ. Their whole structure of thought, their whole way of life, is dependent upon this absolutizing of death. And what the resurrection does to Greek philosophical thought, as it does to every form of thought, it penetrates, it undoes, you know, we imagine, uh, and maybe imagine is the wrong word, sometimes we do it explicitly, but sometimes we do it implicitly. But what we do implicitly is that we absolutize death, we make the grave, uh, you know, we reify it, we make it in some way an impenetrable absolute, and then that absolute plays over and against the something, the life. And so it's always this dialectic between these two absolutes, life, death, good, evil, uh, wisdom, foolishness. And so this is the role that foolishness or madness will play. It functions then as this kind of you know, the, the, the fool is one to be rejected. The, the insane are, are set aside. But you need the insane. And this is whole, the whole point of Michel Foucault's picture of madness in the clinic. You know, madness is in some way functioning in the same role as leprosy had. That the ship of fools, you know, the literal uh, rejection or ejection of the insane is by definition a uh, a formation of a, of an uh, a shift that Foucault is tracing, where you know literally in leprosy death has been cast out. Well, as leprosy disappears, there is madness is going to play the same role as uh, you know the, the disease or death itself is played. And so, what human wisdom is. Uh, the way that it's summed up is always in and through 
this sort of dialectic struggle that Aristotle will picture as an originary chaos. Uh, and what the, the, the wisdom does, in some way it comes in to this original violence, this original chaos, and it brings harmony, it brings balance, it, uh, you know, it, if you think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, it, what human wisdom does, it extracts the good from the evil. Uh, if you think in terms of yin-yang, you know, well, we recognize that, you know, if you th think of the circle, well, within the two, the split circle, first of all, it's a, it's a sphere that is interdependent, and so the yang is dependent upon the yang. If you think of the master-slave dialectic of Hegel, you know, a master is only a master if he has a slave. A slave is that is that there is this identity through difference, but is at the foundation of human wisdom, and that's the very thing that is undone in the cross of Christ. That uh, the 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 dialectic, the oppositional differences are inherently contradictory. And of course, this is the whole point of, in Eastern thought, in a sense, it's gone beyond, you know, a kind of Western understanding that imagines that you can extract the good and the evil, or, or extract the good from the evil, when Yin Yang is saying, well, no, actually, there's no good, there's no evil, because the two are interdependent, that the evil is the good and the good is the evil. Uh, that's precisely what Hegel is saying about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or that's what he's saying in the master-slave dialectic, that the form of thought is inherently contradictory. I believe that's what is happening in the New Testament. I believe that's Paul's message of the cross. This, you know, this foolishness, this madness uh, that they would project or reject Paul is injecting right into the center of their, they're saying, no, that this can all be done. Identity through difference, this is the whole point of, you know, Derrida of others, that, well, it ultimately depends upon an absolute difference, which is a contradiction. There can't be an absolute difference uh, without uh, things being comparable. That is, the two things in some way have to be interconnected. If you think of this in personal terms, you know, this is Paul's point in Romans 7, I do what I do not want, and what I want I do not do. That we might imagine, if we're tied into human wisdom, is that we just push this all the way through. That uh, in some way this dialectic, we just devote ourselves completely into this thing, and, of course, Paul calls this the body of death. What Freud calls it is the death drive. This death drive is this self-binding desire that is inherently uh, destructive. It's in some way uh, that it's an inescapable trap. Once you've got your, your, you know, your foot caught in the, the, the trap, the more you pull, the more you're going to rip yourself apart. And that's, you know, Paul's cry, who will rescue me from this body of death? Um, this, I, I think, can literally be broken down into a uh, sociological or cultural study that we can actually, uh, this is what I'm trying to do, 
uh, with the comparison uh, with Japan. That, that is the manipulation of a particular category. I've been using the category of Amai or Amairu. We, we just looked at the case of Yukio Mishima and we see how the self-binding thing resulted in his own you know, seppuku, his own suicide. But what the individual is experiencing, of course, I think Mishima is simply the embodiment of the self-contradiction that ideology, the ideologies that are always taken up in a particular culture, those ideologies will always work over to our own destruction. In some way, they will always involve the necessary death, the necessary destruction of whoever adheres to it. So this is, you know, when Jesus faces um, crucifixion in Rome, that the high priest says, don't you know that one man must die, that the nation... Well, in a sense, Christ must die. Uh, he's the worst... You know, he's worse than the revolutionaries who apparently are, you know, the insurrectionists who are uh, let released in place of Christ. And the reason that he's worse is that he claims a position, a political position. Paul is going to describe it as a position of wisdom above Caesar, above Rome, above Israel. That is that the whole human construct is this uh, is undone in Christ. It's undone politically. It's undone in terms of the human wisdom. Um, the way that Christ, you know, literally fills this out. He claims to be uh, when he goes into the you know the temple and the so-called cleansing of the temple. I don't think he's really concerned to in some way save Herod's temple, but he, he gives this cleansing as a kind of sign uh, that destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. That is, he's reconstituting political, religious uh, uh, understanding. I think he's literally reconstituting human knowing, human wisdom. So political wisdom, well, Caesar rules, Rome rules, uh, and the best thing to do is to maintain harmony, is to not challenge, you know, don't rock the boat. Religious wisdom, uh, well, you know, this is the picture in Corinthians, the Greeks appease the gods, the Greeks uh, satisfy, they propitiate, this is the grand tragedy in atonement theory because that it's taking a pagan Greek understanding of the law of this dialectic of this you know uh, of the gods being angry or some payment being made that's always the picture of the dialectic uh, some some uh, you know to, to achieve harmony a payment has to be made Jewish wisdom well they're still looking for God's kingdom to be established uh, by and you know uh, the sword by the the Messiah arriving on a white horse. It's still the same sort of thought. It's still uh, the institution of harmony and peace through violence. And the whole point 
of the radical subordination that is the cross, the undoing of human political power, human political wisdom, social wisdom, uh, you know, philosophical wisdom, is that it does not presume to enact a harmony, a harmony or a peace through some sort of overriding of, you know, uh, the dialectic that is positing, you know, saying that we can bring harmony. And of course, the, the whole point of the cross is, the whole point of Christianity, is that it's not founded in an originary violence, an originary chaos, but it's founded in an originary peace, that God uh, is in uh, Trinitarian love, that there's an extension of this love and this peace, and this is the picture then of creation, that it unfolds then not from, you know, and, and, and that's, I think, the significance that in the beginning, in the beginning was God. If you take the pagan picture of creation, it's always the, you know, that's the Enuma Elish, that the, the canopy of the heavens is the slain body of a god, that the blood of the, the gods in some way, and this reoccurs even in Japanese you know, Izanami and Izanagi, that the whole, cre- the, the Japanese islands flow out of the death of, it's sex and death, interestingly, that they are a kind of married couple, but the one must die, that the nation would be born. That's the logic that's always at work. So that in the beginning, there's an originary conflict, there's an originary violence. The creation stories at the beginning was God, or in John, in the beginning was the Word. And so chaos uh, is not at the beginning, but peace, harmony, God, logos. And Christ does not engage the struggle. In other words, he doesn't institute peace on a white horse. He doesn't resist the cross. He doesn't uh, undermine uh, or overmind, you know, overcome the powers, but he undermines them in a sense through a kind of radical subordination. He submits to the violence of the cross because violence and death do not have the last word, and that's the whole point of the cross is to empty out this category, is to show that death, nothingness, madness, you know, whatever you would call this thing, uh, is a non-category. It can be undone. And so he's defeating death. And in defeating death, defeating the very structures of identity through difference. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's unthinkable. That's badness. Um, this is the, the wisdom of God pitted against the wisdom of man. So it's there in First Corinthians. It's there in John the wisdom of man is built then on this destructive lie. The You won't die. You'll be like gods, knowing good and evil, enter into this dialectic, and you can attain an, a new ontology through a alternative epistemology. You can know, and in your knowing, establish your being. You can do identity through difference as a form of philosophy, as a political wisdom, as a religious wisdom, or even that just in some way that's the, the psychological place that you're at, and the cross then exposes this lie. And this is why that we're redeemed through the cross of Christ.
So, uh, if you you know think of uh, human wisdom in in Paul, uh, the idea of uh, that in Corinthians he's describing that it's Paul. You know, they're saying, "Oh, I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos." That what the Corinthians are falling into in their their conflicts is they're falling the, the idea human wisdom always pits us against the other that there's someone who must be thrown out of the city someone who must be rejected but we in some way must in you know uh, there there is an inherent the sparks inherently fly upward as solomon says and this is the security of the earthly city that to reject to build the walls, to you know, establish the armies, and it's always based on violence. The security of the heavenly city, it's in an original peace. The security of the earthly city, it's always a zero-sum game. There's only so much stuff, you know, substance to go around. Uh, if you think of, you know, why does Cain kill Abel? Because in some way he imagines that Abel is, has displaced him in gaining God's favor. And of course, God's you know, uh, uh, whole lesson that he tries to teach to Cain is do what is acceptable and you will be accepted. It's not a zero-sum game. If you think of the two prostitutes that come before Solomon with the one child, uh, the one would say, you know, uh, that when Solomon says, let's split the baby in two, well, her idea is that in some way that fits her rights, that meets her needs. That in some way she needs the death of the child, she needs to deny the other woman of her rights so that she could have her, you know, her own rights. So there's always these two sacrificial systems. There's the sacrificial system of Cain, the sacrificial system of the woman who would slay the child. If you think of Joseph and his brothers, the brothers that would slay Joseph, you know, that's one sacrificial system. And as the brothers, the denouement of that story is that they would originally slay Joseph, but then at the end of the story, when Joseph declares himself, you know, uh, who he is, his identity, it's at the point when the oldest brother says, don't take Benjamin, I will stand in his place. Take my life, not the life of Benjamin. And then they're restored to Joseph. You know, Joseph says, I'm your brother, you know, Joseph. So if you think of the opposite sacrificial system, Cain, you know, uh, God says that he will avenge Cain, and the next person on the scene is Lamech, who says, well, he would be avenged 70 times 7. He's going to sacrifice. He's going to slay. He's going to kill to establish himself. This is the picture that Scripture is portraying, and Christ is undoing. He's naming, using these very numbers when you forgive, forgive 70 times 7. It's an undoing of the, you know, it's a, the, the numerical value there is meant to be an infinite numerical value. Cain or Lamech would never cease slaying. He would never cease killing. Uh, and Christ says you never cease forgiving. And so there is a kind of self-terror that we bring 
onto the world. This is the religion of Moloch, you know, that uh, that the Jews are sacrificing their children, they're passing their children through the fire, uh, that it's mutually, you know, this is this is Cain's hope or uh, Lamech's point. It's a kind of mutually assured destruction. It's mad. Uh, it is what every nation would ultimately do, you know, in the Cold War, that we would have as many nuclear weapons or more, that we would assure the destruction of the other. But, of course, they've also ensured, the Soviets had ensured, that they could destroy us. In the recent gun violence, you know, well, uh, we arm the teachers. Well, and then they've said, well, maybe we need a, uh, maybe every, you know, we need not just one teacher, but two teachers. We need a backup. That we need to arm everybody, you know, that we can. And so there's this mutual assurance of being able to destroy the enemy that is pure madness. Uh, Absolute security and absolute death can be directly identified with one another. In fact, it is already a kind of living death that if your whole life is giving over to attempting to secure yourself, uh, of course, you're living in fear. You're living in slavery to fear. You're dead already. But also you could say this, I think, in regards to knowing can you achieve, you know, is there a certainty? Uh, I think this is the undoing, you know, of human wisdom. This is the problem of the Cartesian cogito, uh, that you can never think yourself into being, I think, therefore I am. Well, if you stop thinking, you ain't, so you better not sleep, you better not, you know, pause in that thought. It's a compulsive, an obsessive, compulsive need to be, um, and so to know it all in some way to obtain being through knowing is a kind of living death. And this is the death that's defeated in the cross. And so the way of the cross is a relinquishing of this absolute security. It's a relinquishing of an absolute knowing. Uh, it's a relinquishing of sacrificing the self for the other. Uh, it's a relinquishing of a demand for rights, and this is the whole image in taking up the cross. That's a strange sort of security. But that's the security that we have when we put ourselves in the hands of God. God does not save us in the sense of not having to pass through death. But in fact, in taking up the cross, the idea is that we face death because recognizing that death itself is defeated in the cross. This is not just, this isn't some sort of magical formula, but it's the very undoing of human wisdom.